I'm Rosie Matteo, and welcome to From Pot to Popular, a new podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstreaming cannabis. Welcome to today's episode of Pot to Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Matteo. Today, we're joined by Brandon Wygan, Chief Operating Officer of Thrive. Thrive is one of the leading operators in Nevada, and it recently just opened one of the first consumption lounges in the state. Brandon is going to join us today and talk about his journey into the cannabis industry, why he thinks the future of cannabis might be in consumption lounges, and the goals that he has as Chief Operating Officer of Thrive. Welcome, Brandon. Hey, Rosie. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm so glad you're here chatting with us. We've got a lot to cover today. First of all, let's, I always like to start with the elevator pitch. Tell us about Thrive. What is Thrive? Yeah, so Thrive is the largest independent operator in the state of Nevada. We have six operating dispensaries right now. We have a seventh dispensary license that's dormant, but we're looking to reactivate. And then we have an eighth provisional license in northern Nevada in Douglas County that we're looking to move forward with if we can get the politics aligned. We're vertically integrated, so we have a cultivation facility. We just recently picked up a production license. We also have a distribution license. And we've been in Nevada since inception, since 2015, prior to any stores opening. You know, we got some pretty deep roots back here. Started with Mitch Britton, who did a lot of the R&D in Colorado, working in the industry uh, while he's in Colorado, and then brought all those learnings and expertise into Nevada. And has really, you know, combined what I think is an exceptional retail experience with premium branding for products. Uh, we produce a lot of our own products in-house while we still buy third party. And that's who Thrive is. Yeah. And I know leadership, uh, you know, has deep roots in cannabis and you do also. So, you know, you have a significant experience in the Nevada cannabis industry. So I'd love to just for our listeners understand a little bit more about your background and how you found your way to the cannabis space, you know, as one of the leaders um, at Thrive. I know you have a deep history as well. Yeah, so similar to Thrive, my journey into cannabis started back in the early days prior to any dispensaries opening into that as well. I was in commercial real estate development, so I, that was really kind of where I cut my teeth and started to get involved and also how we ended up getting into cannabis. We had a, a, a potential tenant that was backed by an operator that was looking to get into the cannabis space and needed a partner. So our team joined forces with them. We brought capital and political expertise, and I brought my you know, development background, project management background. My toe got dipped in basically doing site selection and then working with the team to help build out the facilities. And as we got operational, it was like, we don't have the bandwidth. We need some you know, additional ex- expertise and horsepower. And so I got plugged into uh, production, oversaw our production license, launched and worked with OpenBait to get them into Southern Nevada. We developed a couple of our own brands, uh, Cannabis with a K and Bird Edibles scaled up that team. And then right before recreational kicked in, uh, we parted ways and I ended up going to work with Source, one of the other pretty large operators in Nevada. When I started with that team prior to rep kicking in, it was around 50 team members. And when I left, we were right around 300. Started off as a privately held entity. We got acquired, took the company public through an RTO in Canada. We had to delist. We went through a CCAA. We went through COVID. I mean, just what you know, as as is most people's story in this industry, there's a roller coaster ride, and every day's uh, a new challenge thrown your way. But um, I think that's also what I enjoy about it. So, parted ways with Source in June of this year, and then uh, teamed up with uh, Mitch and Thrive. And this is a company that I've always, you know, Nevada is a tight market, so a lot of us know each other. I've known the team here for quite some time. Always 
love their ethos. You know, one of the things I think Thrive is known for is we, we're doing the right thing because it feels good. Not necessarily because it's the, the most prudent financial decision, but my argument is, you know, a lot of those decisions we make that may not look like the most prudent financial decisions are really investments that pay dividends over time. So like really trying to build the right company that does the right things, that is known for doing the right things, that attracts the right talent, uh, you know, puts a halo around our brand. That's something I always feel like getting behind. I love that. And I, I always say, you know, if you do the right thing, you know, the right things happen for you. So I, I believe in that ethos and I love that you guys share that. You know, so you've been on the roller coaster, but now you're in this new ride, right? So how are you approaching the new role at Thrive, um, like overseeing the business day-to-day management, the efficiencies, the regulatory compliance? So how are you bringing that skill set specifically to Thrive? And, you know, really, what are you trying to do? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I've coming from a group that was small, nimble, privately held, going through the iterations of really becoming more of a you know, a corporate behemoth, um, you know, carrying a large SGNA. I think there's a lot of insights I've brought to the team of like, hey, here's how I might want to avoid doing things going forward, uh, where we got a little over our skis in the past. But here's some of the learnings and insights I've developed over the years, how a company needs to scale and really getting kind of a peek behind the curtain. The source, you know, our, our backers were strong retail uh, I mean, you know, two billionaires from Ohio involved, you know, largest shareholder in Albertsons. You know, we had Victoria's Secret uh, talent. We had Abercrombie and Fitch talent. We had, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, to name your retailer, and we had a lot of that experience. And then we also had a lot of CPG experience. So I think that really kind of cracks open your head of, hey, this isn't just cannabis. It's really, how do you take these learnings and insights from these other industries and start to apply them to ours? I think the real magic is how do you kind of marry the nuance that cannabis has with that right. professional acumen, and uh, that's where I've tried to sit and kind of find. So looking at Thrive, it's like, hey, here's the things that we're doing well that I don't want to lose. I want to stay tight. I want to stay nimble. But here's some ways that we can grow up and scale the organization. And a lot of that's just started with you know kind of foundational reporting, going into retail reporting, talking to the team about how I think about the business. Not to say we didn't have reporting, but just there's a different way to look at retail, going into a retail calendar month, right? Or doing a four by four calendar so you can really start to level out some of the uh, ups and downs that you see on a monthly basis. Just that helps us start to compare, hey, how do we actually do yesterday compared to, oh, what are the metrics we're looking at? Like I said, it's been a lot of small stuff. We've got a really nimble team here that's that's eager and adaptable, but bringing in that level of experience, kind of expertise, that is helping them look at the business differently. And not necessarily like, you know, I always say reporting doesn't really answer your questions, but it helps you ask better questions. So starting to, you know, one of our core values is uh, stay curious. It's like constantly looking at our numbers and what's happening in the business and asking why. What happened yesterday? Why was that a win? What happened, you know, a week ago? Why did we lose, lose ground? So forcing the team to be curious, forcing the team to continue to ask questions, constantly looking for, you know, opportunities to grow. How do we, you know, one of my other sayings is how do we show up today and be better than we were yesterday? And how do we show up tomorrow and be better than we were today? So just that constant. Yeah. And talking about growth. So, you know, in this role, do you have specific growth targets you have in mind for Thrive? Like what does growth look like to you, like from your seat today? Yeah. So some of that, I'm still getting my arms around. We, you know, we haven't, unlike a lot of corporations, we don't have this like, hey, here's our three-year plan and these are our targets and these are our commitments to shareholders. I think we've got a very bought-in investment team and backers. They believe in us and they believe in the trajectory. So I'm starting to develop and look at, we're also in this phase of, you know, growth is hard to plan for. Um, So 
two years ago, we didn't know if we we're going to have consumption lounges or not. We didn't know when they were going to show up. Even six months ago, we didn't really know when the regulations were going to be promulgated and finished. So a lot of this is flying by the seat of your pants, but trying to do as much as you can to plan around it. And so, like I said, when I talk about growth targets, I wouldn't, I don't have anything that I'm hanging my hat on other than we, you know, as you know, Nevada has suffered. I think most of the cannabis, you know, legacy markets have suffered over the last year. So I think we're trying to figure out what's our new normal and then how do we grow from there. So I, I'm very focused on customer acquisition and customer retention. You know, we've seen a dip in traffic. Where is that dip in traffic coming from? Who are the customers that are no longer shopping with us? Is it really customers that are no longer shopping with us? Or are they just spreading out their purchases so that we're seeing a dip in traffic? There's a lot of questions and a lot of, except a lot of curiosity right now that I'm trying to get my head wrapped around to then develop, hey, what's our plan and target to be able to answer that question of where do I think we can go? So it's, you know, I think we're probably two steps away from being able to put together a projected plan. Really is trying to get my arms wrapped around what's equilibrium, how do we find that new normal? How do we set the correct expectations and level of the team? And then how do we start to grow from there? Yeah, I mean, that's very sound. And I want to talk about consumption lounges in a minute, but talking, speaking about traffic. So you drive to this location open just recently, uh, right next to the Las Vegas Strip, which is arguably one of the top tourist destinations in the U.S., maybe even the world, right? Uh, so given the rise in cannabis tourism, especially now that people are coming out of the pandemic and starting to travel again, like, how is the new location performing? And what are you guys trying to do to attract new customers? Like, are you ensuring, and to that point, like, I know you still want to attract local customers. So how do you balance, you know, marketing to the consumer that's coming into town, like the traveler and the local market? Let me talk a little about, you know, how you guys are thinking about this new, like high profile location. Yeah, it's a, I'd say it's off to a good start. I think every store I open, I always have high expectations for, and I'm always, I want to say frustrated, but it's challenging, right? It's like it's like getting the momentum and getting the flywheel turning. So I think we're we're starting every week. We're seeing incremental growth. Every week we're seeing more more traffic. I know that's going to compound and grow on itself, and so we're headed in the right direction. I'd love to pour some gas on the fire and, and really get it going because I think that store has a ton of potential. But it's a competitive market. You know, we're competing against the Planet 13, the Reefs, Oasis. There's a lot of competition for the tourist customer. It's not a market or a demographic that we've really played in in the past. So it's definitely a departure from what has been our core, uh, which is really around locals, you know, regular traffic, repeat visitors. So it's a little bit of a different ballgame. And we're certainly learning to move through. So uh, you hit the nail on the head, Rosie. I mean, it's a it's a combination of the two, right? Like, how do we continue to cater to the local customers? I think that was one thing we didn't want to lose wanted to make sure that we you guys are known for that local customer experience. Like I've been to, you know, some of the stores off the strip and it's amazing. You know, when you hear people talking in the stores, like the affinity they have for them. Yeah. And it's, I, I think just because we're located close to the strip doesn't mean we ignore the locals. I think right. there's, I mean, that is the number one employment center in Southern Nevada. And so that's that's something we've done is really gone after and, and looked at how do we attract the hospitality workers? Um, how do we attract the individuals that work along the strip to patronize our store? How do we give them an excellent customer experience? How do we make sure we have the right products that they're looking for? Because I think over time, again, kind of investing in that customer pays dividends, they're the ones that will end up referring all of their customers. So when they're serving a table, checking right. Or when they're taking their bill back up and they get a question about, hey, where should I go? Or I'm looking for cannabis. I want Thrive to be top of mind. And so I think that takes longer to build into, but I think it's a lot more durable when we get there. We've been very strategic I and mean, we've looked at opportunities. Resource World had a uh, concert, uh, Psycho Fest, uh, right after we opened. We saw a lot of positive traffic from that. 
I think we're very optimistic about what the future holds and being able to start to work with, you know, the certain customers that want to work with us. At the end of the day, we want to be a good neighbor. We don't want to be confrontational in the neighborhood. I think there's been some tension between, you know, hospitality and cannabis, but I think, look, it's what our consumers are looking for, right? And it's what visitors are looking for to Las Vegas. Nobody does send better than Las Vegas. That's right. So, and, Look, I, I I would I would be remiss if I didn't mention as well. Right across the parking lot from us is you know one of the world's largest strip clubs, the Sapphire. Right. So there's this nice effect of gaming, of you know entertainment and cannabis that I think can work together really well. And you know getting a consumption lounge put in that location is like the icing on the cake. And so I'm I'm teasing that one out again. I know we're going to talk about it later, but that's that's one of our visions for that location. Is I think it can be this really amazing activation that not only serves the locals, helps create the experience for tourists and helps kind of play within the ecosystem that we've created of entertainment, not just cannabis, but really the entertainment aspect of Las Vegas. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so well, let's dig in a little more on the consumption lounge side of things, right? So, you know, they recently announced that we're getting accepting applications like for the consumption lounges and the you're the Las Vegas trip location, like has a section like ready carved out for it. So do you guys, is that going to be your flagship and you're planning to open more? Like at your point, it's all about entertainment. It's all about the customer experience, all about, you know, partying in Vegas. So what does your strategy look like for consumption lounges? And, you know, I think you already mentioned this, but do you think the consumption lounges are a threat to bars? Are they a good compliment? Like how, what's the vision for it? And why are they needed actually, right? Because there's like yeah. so many opportunities, you know, for, for fun in Sin City. Man, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. So let me, let me start on the, on the front end. One is to kind of lay the foundation and not everybody understands this each operator dispensary in nevada is allowed one consumption lounge okay uh, you're allowed to apply in one jurisdiction and that is where your license sits um, it's not going to be a license that you can transport or move around to other jurisdictions so we're being very strategic in where we apply the state has promulgated regulations and those are out mostly finalized i think there's still some odd demands but like call it 99% of the regulations are done and put out and applications are going to be accepted imminently. I think 1014 is when the uh, uh, application period opens. That is the state level. You still have the jurisdiction levels. So jurisdictions have really been sitting on their hands waiting for the state to finish their process before they start theirs. I think the state was hoping that the jurisdiction would use the time that they were using concurrently so that we could be a little bit faster. That hasn't happened. So, and it's not surprising, right? I think most jurisdictions want to understand where does the state sit so that we can make our own determinations. And so that process is starting. And so we have a plan for Sammy Davis. I think we you know, we expect that we'll be able to open there, but it remains to be seen. We still have to go through the process of the county. And I certainly don't want to say that we have something that has not been granted to us yet, but that's our idea. We would love to put the location there. Uh, we think it's the right location and we think we'd be a good partner with the Strip and with Clark County. That being said, there's a number of other locations available. We have locations up in Reno. We have Jackpot. I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see. I think most Cannabis lounges, especially from current dispensary operators, we open around the tourist corridor. I know Planet 13 has a giant you know, lounge open. I think it makes the most sense, but there's a whole separate class of licenses that are independent lounges, minority-owned lounges, and social equity lounges that I think start to you know, give you some geographic diversity. I think individuals will choose to place these in, in more unique locations. And 
one of the things I like about what the state of Nevada did with their consumption lounges is it's really not just a bar where you consume cannabis. It's really think of it as an entertainment complex. It could be that. It could be a restaurant. It could be a comedy club. It could be yoga. I mean, there's a lot of flexibility. I'm really excited to see what licensees do with this. What does consumption look like with other entertainment opportunity? And I think that's going to be really interesting to see how you know Nevada and specifically Las Vegas approaches it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that you know some of the other states like the the regs are a little tighter where you can just like smoke, you know, you know, consume cannabis in the lounge, and there's really not room for food and bev. And like that's just not what customers are used to, right? You go for the experience when you go to a bar, right, or a restaurant. So I think that's really, I think it's great that the regulations are set up in Nevada to really lean into what Nevada is known for, which is entertainment. Yeah, yeah, no, as I say, why, why do we need lounges? Why do we think these are interesting? I think one, it solves a fundamental issue we have where we legalize cannabis, but we gave, and we're a tourist-based economy, uh, both in Northern Nevada and Southern Nevada. So we generate and rely on a lot of tourism. We, we created a fundamental issue where we legalize cannabis. We got a lot of cannabis. We got individuals that are coming to the state wanting to partake and we gave them no legal way to consume. You have to consume in a private residence. So unless you're staying with friends or unless you have an Airbnb that is giving you, you know, complicity and said, hey, you're allowed to do this, you know, none of the casinos want it, none of the hotels want it. So we created this kind of, you know, oddball scenario where it's like consumers can come here, they can purchase cannabis, but they have no legal way to consume it. So I think right. we're needed from that perspective. Like, hey, we just need to provide a safe, clean atmosphere for individuals to consume. But then furthermore is you've got a lot of cannabis, right? You've got individuals that both experience and inexperienced, but how do you really kind of open up the pie? You know, how do we look at different consumption methods? How do you get educated on those consumption methods? How do you learn more about the product? You know, different from a, a bar where you go and order your favorite drink, it's like, how do I go to a distillery and really learn about how the product is made? Why I might choose this uh, alcohol over this one? What's the care, love, and attention and detail that's been put into this product that speaks to me? I think that's really where a consumption lounge comes in is you get to be a lot more intimate with the product. You get to learn a lot more about the product. I personally, from our side, we're really looking for an elevated experience. I think one of the ways we'll differentiate is we're not looking to be the largest, you know, cannabis lounge in Las Vegas. We don't want to turn it into 40,000 foot nightclub. I think we want it to be small. We want it to be intimate. We want it to be special. And we want to have that opportunity to really engage and take a customer along a journey and provide an experience. So whether that's from, you know, infused foods to different ways to consume through inhalation, to having a cigar roller that can roll a premium product for you at the table side. Like there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of fun. There's a lot of ingenuity and there's a lot of interesting ways to approach it that I think will lead to that customer experience. And, uh, you know, that's, that's our approach. I'm really excited to see how others approach it. Cause I think that's to me, the most exciting part, like we talked about is man, the world is our oyster. How do we want to approach this? I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how it comes out to play. I love it. I mean, you're getting me excited to come visit. I know it's not open yet. Count me in for one of the first reservations. It sounds amazing. I want to shift gears a little bit. You know, we talked a little about some of the market conditions. So the illicit market continues to persist in states in you know, a legalized medical and adult use cannabis, especially someone like Nevada, which has been around for a while, right? So, and there's just increasing competition uh, between the legal retail stores and dispensaries to gain this loyalty. So what are you guys doing to connect the communication of your mission to customers who are being pulled either to other dispensaries or back into the illicit market? So talk to us about how you differentiate yourself and, and how you really, you know, get that customer loyalty, you know, to thrive. Yeah, look, one of the other hats I wear is I'm president of the NCA, the Nevada Cannabis Association. So the illicit markets, you know, top of mind for us. 
it's a huge issue. You know, and when I talk about the industry, like our biggest competitor isn't another dispensary or each other. It is the illicit market. That's market um, right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's challenging. Like, I mean, not only have we had kind of an economic shift, right? We've got inflation. I think we're comping against a year where there was stimulus money in the market. Inflation was low. And there were still quite a few people um, stay, you know, still working from home. They didn't have, you know, we didn't have as much comp- competition for discretionary spend. You had the stimulus money that kind of gave them extra dollars in their pocket to spend. A lot of that went into cannabis. Uh, at least we saw a lift. And this year, we're looking at inflation, right? People are back to work. Life is kind of, quote, unquote, come back to normal, if we can call it that. And with inflation, you've got consumers really looking at, hey, do I fill up my gas tank? Do I fill up my grocery basket? Or do I fill up my bowl? And so we've seen that, you know, we've seen some softening on demand as things have come back. That being said, I think we've also, we're competing against very robust illicit market. So there's some very large harvest that came out of California last year. We've seen a balloon in the illicit market, specifically in California, that has created a ton of competition. Concurrently, we've had a regulator that's taken a, what I would say, more aggressive kind of antagonistic stance amongst the industry. I think there's a lot of frustration along licensees with how the regulations are being uh, enforced, the way they're doing fine stacking, you know, the way they're going after six-figure fines for what I consider to be good operators, especially for self-reported incidents. We've had a number of uh, challenges in Nevada where operators have been very forthright above board, gone to the regulator and said, hey, here's the issue we ran into and are getting their teeth kicked in when it comes to enforcement fines. As well, we have a regulator that's charging us time and effort billing for every single action they take when we already pay a wholesale excise tax that was put in place in order to fund that regulator. So as licensees were filling the pinch, we've seen a rising in costs. We've seen an increase in the expense of being a regulated licensee. And I'd say we're probably the only industry that hasn't been able to pass on any price increases in consumers. So we're getting hit from both sides. So where, where does that come? You know, where, where do we go from here and what does that look like? I think our approach has really been how do we combat the illicit market? And I think that's also one of our frustrations. We have a regulator who's taking this very activist stance with licensees. And concurrently, nobody's doing anything about the illicit market. And I actually had a conversation with our attorney general board. And I just said to him, I said, at this point, I really don't understand why I'm a licensed operator. I could work on the black market as long as I keep it under a certain amount. And as long as I do things a certain way, I'm looking at maybe a civil penalty and maybe you pull some, but like nobody has the appetite to, you know, individuals to prosecute, to take anything to trial. This is a broken system. Like when it's more attractive to be an illegal operator than a licensed operator, something is broken. And I think the NCA, you know, with the rest of our board and our team and our licensees um, are looking to confront that issue and take that on. I think we're looking for the state and our regulators to be a good partner. Um, I think we want to lean into the strengths that this industry has created. We've got 15,000 jobs in Nevada. We've got state and local governments that are relying on tax revenue generated by this industry in order to perform. So I would like to see a more collegial approach where much like the gaming control board, hey, we are here to make sure things are done the correct way, but we're also here to support business and industry and make sure that you have the opportunity to survive. And I think that you can't have that conversation without taking on and talking about how do we combat the illicit market. And look, I, I, I'm not a fan or in favor of recriminalizing cannabis, but I do think there needs to be some levers and opportunities in place where you can go after one of these illicit operators that operate under the shadow. And I'm not talking about people slicking an ounce here and there, right? I mean, these are guys that are sophisticated businesses bringing hundreds of pounds into the market. 
and really running a pretty sophisticated business. And as well as, you know, how do you how do you look at the consumers that willingly choose to patronize the illicit market? I think there needs to be some, you know, there needs to be some disincentives there as well. On the other side, you know, the more, hey, how do we take a proactive approach with customers? I think it's it focuses a lot on education. And so what can we provide that the illicit market doesn't? I think one is confidence in the product. I mean, we go through very rigorous testing. Uh, Nevada has probably some of the most rigorous testing standards uh, in the States. I think that gives consumers confidence that, hey, I know what I'm buying. I know that it's healthy. I know that it doesn't contain products that will make me sick or that are you know, going to help. I think it also works on education. You know, like that is something we're passionate about, changing the stigma, changing the stereotype, really communicating and, and educating our consumers on what are you buying? How do you want to consume? How does this work into your lifestyle? I think we view cannabis not as a, a binary, you know, hey, you're a medical consumer or a recreational consumer. I think you fall somewhere on a spectrum between recreational and medical. But I think as you peel back the onion, almost everybody gets back to health benefits or wellness benefits. You talk to recreational users and you start to dig about why are they consuming and it's usually you know, I need to de-stress at the end of the day. I need help getting to sleep. Um, you know, my appetite isn't there. And like, I need, like, all of those are wellness benefits. And the same thing you talk to medical consumers, like, hey, there's medical reasons to use it, but there's also the, the wellness aspect of, hey, it's uplifting. It helps elevate my mood. It's medicine that helps solve these specific ailments and issues, but it also helps me be more positive. It helps me take off some of the, you know, the negativity that I'm in and it helps, you know, elevate that mood. So, We've always viewed it as a wellness product. I think we continue to educate around it as a wellness product. I think, again, you get consistency and continuity. When you find the product that works for you, you can go back to that store. That's right. That's it's right. Like, and we have the test results. So we say, hey, if we can't find the exact product, I can find a flower or a product that's very similar in scope that should be able to give you the same experience you had previously. So I think those are the benefits you have from a legal operator and an operator like Thrive is one, we care about you as a customer. We want to build that relationship. We want repeat business. We want to take the time to educate you. I'm not showing up at your doorstep with an aid to want to play an Xbox. Absolutely. And, you know, you touched on it just now. Actually, I want to talk about that. So last week, actually, a Nevada district judge ruled that the state board's uh, pharmacy's classification of cannabis as schedule one drug was not unconstitutional because of accepted medical use, right? And then um, the U.S. Court of Appeals actually ruled the federal government's decision to classify cannabis schedule one is not unconstitutional, right? So, you know, it's actually pretty progressive in Nevada trying to go against the federal government and deschedule or reschedule cannabis, right? So how do these opposing rulings impact the movement for federal declassification? And do you think other states might try to follow Nevada's lead? Do you think this could be like a, a leading trend? I would hope so. I think you know, you've seen some similar movements in California where uh, they recently passed legislation uh, with Governor Newsom that, hey, cannabis consumption outside of work hours cannot be used as a reason to fire employees. We had a similar case that ruled the opposite direction. Uh, so it was like, hey, this was uh, a reason that they could terminate an employee. I don't know where it goes from here, right? I mean, I think each, and that is part of the challenge with our industry is each state is handling it individually. We don't have a cohesive federal structure, but I think that's also the opportunity is just, just like the founders designed, each state is its own lab, creating some of its own laws and regulations and, and governing its, itself in the way it sees fit. Yeah. And I think that creates an opportunity where you really start to look at, we've got a lot of experiments going on. So what's working? Let's figure out what's working in all these states and then start to build our case for uh, federal legalization. Because I think 
I don't think there's anybody right now that say we don't end up with federal legalization. It's just the question is when and how. Right, right. So, I, you know, I'm of the opinion that the longer we go without federal legalization, I think there's some benefits. I think we learn more. I think we come up with better policy. I think we'll have, you know, less of a false start or issues when we do start. But I do think there's, you know, one, one of the things I'm passionate about is decriminalization and really expungement. I, I think it's terribly unfair that we have individuals still sitting in prison for a product that we're benefiting and profiting from at this point. And that's an injustice that I think needs to be fixed. So, you know, I'm of, of the opinion and favorable to, I can wait on federal legalization, but let's start working on correcting some of the sins of the past so that we're not in this weird dichotomy. Yeah, I'm totally with you. And just to wrap up, what excites you most about the U.S. cannabis space and Nevada over the next year? What are you looking forward to for the next 12 months? Well, lounges are one of those big ones. Like I said, I think I'm probably most excited because that's that's going to be the most visible and probably one of the biggest changes and a state that's truly leading from the front. I mean, I applaud our legislators. I applaud the state of Nevada. I applaud the CCB for taking this on. I'm, I'm pretty excited about this next iteration. What it looks like, you know, that's, that's anybody's guess. I've had conversations with others. There's there's a lot of us that are being a little, you know, holding things close to the vest because there is so much flexibility and opportunity that we don't necessarily want to show our cards, but I'm, I'm really excited to start to come to light. Beyond that, I think, you know, looking at not just with lounges, but like, how does that industry continue to improve? I think what I've been most impressed with is just the, the rate of change and in innovation. I call them cannabis years. You know, every year that you spend cannabis feels like seven because what you were doing at the beginning of the year is very different from what you're usually doing at the end of the year. That pace of innovation is relentless. But that also keeps you on your toes and it means it never gets stale or boring. And so, you know, as I look forward to, you know, product development, what are some of the product trends I've seen? I think beverages are going to be very big and you continue to see uh, more and more beverages come to market. I think that's a very interesting consumption method that, you know, may not work with your kind of legacy consumers. To some extent, it does, depending on the product. But I think a lot of newer rookie consumers coming in, that seems to be a really easy entry point that's easy yeah. to understand because it seems so boring. You also start to look at some of the, you know, other cannabinoids. So THCV, CBN, CBG, start to look at how do we tool products to solve specific issues. So, hey, if I'm looking for sleep aid, which I hear constantly from customers, you know, a lot of people are turning to cannabis for aid and sleep. My wife is a good example. She suffered from insomnia since she was a teenager, started using cannabis, was able to get off all the prescription drugs that helped her with sleep, and she has better rest. A lot of consumers doing the same thing. So CBN is very interesting. Interesting. Same here. I'm a CBN fan. Um, Give me all the CBN. I'm not a good sleeper. So I've changed my life for the better. (laughs) I I mean, and there's a ton of these kind of minor cannabinoids that have these really potent effects. And we don't even have all the research to really pin them down. But I think that's very exciting to see over the next year. I see more and more products coming to market that look that way. And I think you'll continue to see that that innovation as well. And then um, I came from a team that helped develop some of the first raws of products for Nevada. And I think that's another trend that will continue to persist. I think, especially with this demographic, they were looking for, you know, the purer, the better. To, to make a good rosin product, you have to first grow good flour. You don't really get to hide your sins. If you can't grow good that's rosin, right. good rosin. And so it's, you know, it's like your single malts, like you got to have good inputs to have a good output. And I, I see more of a trend that direction while continuing to look at how do we grow better flour. I mean, that is one of our biggest challenges as a state is this is not an environment that's made for cannabis. No. 
right. you can you can purchase your your flower you can put it on a shelf and it's like the environment does the rest and it preserves it for you here we're in a desert so i think educating consumers looking at it's not just consumers but even operators like how do you make sure your cure is done correctly and then how do you make sure you preserve that flower through the supply chain to the consumer's hands and then how do we make sure our consumers are educated that Hey, you got to care for this product appropriately. I don't think anybody would buy a cigar in Nevada and not put it in a humidor and, and have the humidity and the, the environment right. It's the same thing you got to do with your flower. I think as we continue to educate, innovate, and adapt, I think that'll get better and better as we go forward. Absolutely. I'm excited for all those things. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to hear when you guys open the lounge. Like I said, I'll be your first visitor, and I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, the invitation will be in the mail, Rosie. Amazing. 